Bienvenido, and welcome back, or welcome to Mentors Today. I would normally right now be asking Ileana how she's doing, but instead, Ilya is taking a little bit of time off from the show to focus on her day job. So uh, we'll see her back here, or hear her back here, I should say, in a few weeks. But for now, we wish her well, and we're glad she's getting some rest and doing some cool work for Yama. So in lieu of her, I am going to try and do my best to fill in and carry both the normal role that I would as well as hers. And with that, I am really, really excited to introduce our guest today. Our guest today is Isaac McCoy, and Isaac is, amongst many things that we're going to discuss, he is the Dean of the School of Business at Stillman College and also co-founder of, this is where I'm going to let you speak up right now and interrupt me for a second in your intro because I never want to pronounce the name of your consultancy in the wrong way. What is that? Is it Jami? Jami. Jami. Okay, there we go. So the Jami Group Consultancy, social impact and business development firm uh, that is committed to helping business leaders create greater opportunities for themselves while also redefining their competitive edge and impacting their company's triple bottom line. What is a triple bottom line, you might ask? Financial, social, and environmental with efficiency and ease that Isaac and his team help bring. Isaac is an educator, professional mentor, business development executive, skilled at navigating the busy intersection of nonprofits, public entities, corporations, and social impact investment. During a 20-year-long academic and professional career marked by various successes, he has founded or led a number of different companies and nonprofit organizations that have improved civic health and increased economic opportunities for communities and businesses in a variety of different ways and a variety of different places. He's a former White House appointee inside the Obama administration, where he led economic policy and initiatives supporting the growth and sustainability of minority-owned businesses. He was once selected by the U.S. State Department to serve as a Global Innovation Fellow. Global Innovation Fellows are emerging entrepreneurs and innovators who are committed to international dialogue that promotes shared economic prosperity. He is, like I am, dedicated to the next generation of business leaders and influencers. We are both guys that look forward, not backward. And he's serving that role in many, in, in one way by being the Dean of the School of Business at Stillman College, which is a HBCU, a historically black college or university. He brings his experience and passion to serve his community through participation on several boards at the state and local committee level. My goodness, he's either got to be 800 years old to have done all this stuff already, or he must only sleep like an hour a night. I don't know how this man does it, but welcome Isaac McCoy to Mentors Today, buddy. Great to have you. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thank you, thank you. And and as you're reading, I'm like, who is this guy he's talking about? So, <laughs> right. So yeah. So so my my knees definitely feel as old as the uh, as the intro, but uh, but I also uh, yeah definitely I, I don't even call it sleep anymore. I just say I nap a couple hours okay. a day. So I just slightly reach off. So much I want to talk to you about. Um, okay, so, I like uh, it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with the first uh, the first question, which is like, tell tell me, tell us why is it so important to you? But then more broadly, why do you think it's so important overall that we develop entrepreneurial economies in communities of color and outside of the traditional tech startup VC geographies? 
Well, I think um, the the first part, I think, you know, we can look at it from a macro level um, and and you want individuals to be, especially in in our our capitalistic society, you want individuals to be contributors to a strong economy. Um, And and when we isolate individuals, both on purpose, intentionally and uh, through unintentional means and policies and practices, uh, we weaken our overall economy. And so we may have segments of it that are really strong. And, and you'll see some of the you know, the top wealthy individuals are still growing their wealth. But then when we look at these larger pictures, um, you see that the middle class is shrinking. And these are things that we should all care about. Um, and so um, that is something why it's important is because if we're looking at a strong uh, economy on a national level, we need everyone to be a part of it. And and then two, not always at the same level per se, but at the level in which they want to engage. And so there shouldn't be impediments and or barriers on individuals who want to engage our our economy in a a certain way, but they can't. And so so that's why, you know, why I'm so not not just interested, but invested in it. And I'll just make a, a quick analogy because. Either a number of my analogies are, are usually to sports, which I uh, I love feverishly. And Mine or, too. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Uh, and hopefully your listeners are as well, because I'll make a number of sports analogies and or uh, I'll equate it to biblical because my parents were pastors and, and, and ministers. And so so that is a, a big uh, foundation for me. So one of the things I talk about is when just in, in a religious context or spiritual context, um, Jesus Christ came on, uh, was on this earth to give access to this, his love and, and grace and mercy and this everlasting life. And he, he didn't save everyone, but he said, if you want it, this is the access. And so mm-hmm. I always took that same thing in economics. It says, hey, I don't necessarily need everyone to be entrepreneurs, but if you want it, you should have ease of access. And so how do I make it as easy as possible? How do I translate it and, and commune with individuals to make this as easy as possible? And that's my goal is to give the access to individuals who want it. If they, you know, if an individual group of individuals do not want it, that's okay. Yeah. But they should have the, the the same access and the same ease as when, when they want to. And that's my goal is to to make equitable, the justice, the the equality, the access to it should be the same. Is that mostly driven through improved or more more predictable, more stable, as you would say, more accessible systems and infrastructure? Like is it is do we do we drive that type of increased accessibility for a wider group of people, wider group of participants, by making sure that the infrastructure and the systems are are like repeated, like city after city or location after location? Or is it more in your perspective like your work that you do, is it more just like individual one case by one case, like one one community or one project? Oh, great question. And I think um, um, as I've aged, it's become on a you know larger level. Uh, when I, I started my first, uh, one, of, one of my first organizations in my 20s was, was really focused on socially conscious and religious organizations, how to uh, help them increase their effectiveness and efficiency. And, um, and so these same practices were, were in place, but it was, it was with organizations of a specific area that fit within a specific uh, niche. And then, too, at the same time, it was back in uh, my home state of Illinois. And so the region was, uh, you know, I was focused on a certain region and then 
a certain demographic uh, within that region. And so, but as I, um, you know, age, I had opportunities to, to grow that into, you know, larger from the, you know, what from city to a state to a regional to a national level. And so, so anyway, so, so I think that my, my focus or goal is to, to do it on whichever level I can have an impact on. But when we look at it, uh, you know, now I'm just doing more things on a national and now even global level. Uh, that's just where I've made, you know, my my most recent impacts are on that level. Um, and so so I like to stay there. And then, I, you know, how do I help and support those that are doing it on the ground in certain cities or certain communities? Yeah. How, do, how can I, you know, how can I connect that 30,000 square foot to the, you know, to the one foot? And so um, so I care, care about the whole spectrum. But I've just now spent um, spent some time in this more national global space of, of economic equity and inclusion. Interesting. Almost like train the trainer, right, is another analogous yeah. way to look at it. Like, I'm, So you're helping some organizations or companies or individuals, and then essentially they wind up being the, the seeds in their community, right? So you, yes. move, you move on to another community and, and, you know, or the organization that you happen to contract with to work with next is in a different place. But, but then you, you help bring those people up, right, get them stronger, and then they go back and they live and and practice their work and build their businesses and their economy like there in their community after you've moved on. Yes, yeah, yes, sir. And and then too, and just um and once again and and it's interesting because once again I had the same interest and passion when I was, you know, twenty years ago. Uh, but now when you get exposed to different things, when I had the opportunity to work on a national level, um then you start thinking and you get exposed to things differently. When I had the opportunity to to uh, have the opportunity with the State Department and the, the Global Entrepreneurial Innovation um, Fellowship, then it put this on a, this, a global context. Sure. And so, so when you once you're exposed to that, it's hard to go back just, just, just yeah. to a community, right? So it's yeah. you go do the work in the community, but it's still now connected to a larger, um, you know, exposure. And I just like I said, it happened to be exposed from a city level, then it went to a regional, then it went to a state and national and global level. So I'm making sure I exercise my access. So I was blessed to have that access into these different and, and larger rooms. And so how do I continue to make impact there? But then also understand that um, it the rubber meets the road on an individual level or an sure. organizational level. So you can't forget about it. But right. What do we say about politics? Right. Same same about business and economics is, is it's all local. <laughs> yes, very, very much so. Very right. much so. So we can design strategically at the at the macro global level, but the truth is, if you don't find ways to help people implement it at the local level, it's never going to last. Exactly. Exactly. That's fascinating. Yep. It's so, never going to be actualized. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just great ideas at, at that point. Um, so okay. So let let's dive in a little bit more specifically. So talk to us about the consultancy. Talk to us about the Jamie Group. Who's involved? How did it get started? Like, kind of, what's the origin story on this? And then what what kind of work are you doing right now? OK, you know, and it's and it's funny because I know this is the, I know you mentioned the Jami group and I'll lean into a couple other firms or a couple, a couple other organizations that I have, too, because it's it's uh, it's kind of an ecosystem and, and the okay. Jami group plays a, a integral role in that ecosystem. And so so the Jami group was founded um, literally like the the days leading up to the end of the Obama administration. Okay. Um, and so. Uh, obviously, a couple of months before that, there was uh, the election of 2016. And at the time, obviously, I think, you know, a number of uh, uh, Americans and I would hyper uh, focus on those in the Obama administration were pretty sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency. And so a number of us were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so and, and if you and you work in obviously in administrations, your administration ends when that president 
um, you know, their their term in. So even though you you knew that or you felt that Hillary Clinton would be the next president, um, you knew your job was ending. And so individuals were positioning themselves to either work within, um, you know, a, a Hillary Clinton administration or they were going to work within D.C., which they felt would still be a Democratic town or at least democratic influence. And so anyway, so this is the the leading up into the the end of Obama administration. Obviously that that uh, Tuesday night things um, changed, right? And so now over the now that's you know the the first week in November, now you're looking at individuals who had planned to be either in DC or still have an influence in DC or in an administration now saying I don't know what to do. Not uh, okay. only is it I'm not in the administration now, this town is changing to a conservative town. So my influence, my value is now de- diminished or decreased sure. in DC. And so now you're looking at individuals who had plans <laughs> to figure out what's going next. And so me as an entrepreneur going into the administration as an entrepreneur that has created things before, I'm looking at individuals like, hey, why don't we create things? Mm. And everyone's looking at me like, uh, what? (laughs) And I'm talking about more talented than I am, more talented than I can ever imagine. Uh, But they're like, "Uh, I don't know. That's Mm. not I don't know why you're starting. So anyway, so 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 at the end of the day, uh, I looked and said, okay. These are some of the most talented individuals in this country that are sitting here in D.C. right now, confused of what to do next. And so I said, hey, look, let's let's create an organization where we can do some really cool things that we did within the administration, but really evolve them to uh, a private sector. Right. So we were in the government and now we individuals felt that the things that they advocated for, be it education, economic development, immigration. Uh, housing, um, justice, these things are now going to look different. But yet, how do we still have an impact? And so we can have an impact from the private sector. And so the Jami group uh, was formed. Jami is Swahili for community, society, family. So it was this coming together. Um, and and so what uh, me and uh, my business partner, Demetri Gallagher, who was also uh, a, a White House appointee, we said, you know what, we will, we will take the uh, the brunt or the burden of going out and saying we're going to be these entrepreneurs, but okay. we want to, to tap into this, uh, these, this expertise that we have been around in all of these areas for the last several years. And what we wanted to do is say, we're going to have, we have access to this community of experts and how do we come into your community, your organization, or your ecosystem, and how do we um, help you get to the goals and outcomes that you want by using these community of experts? And so we were kind of like the shepherds of these really talented individuals who may not have understood the space, but knew they had something to give, but didn't know how to give it besides a nine to five. And so that's how the Jami Group was formed. And so our the opportunities that we uh, engage in are just that diverse. And because we we can be a chameleon in the sense of the projects right. that we work on, because of the access of these really, really talented individuals. But the things that we talk about um, in particular um, on a, on a larger level was, you know, it's, it's, we work with entities or ecosystems on this uh, embracing this intersection of um, um, innovation, diversity, and social impact. And, and individuals say, okay, what does that mean? And, 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 and in that it's not necessarily just individual uh, categories of service. We said we've looked back and said these uh, three are like the all important trinity. Um, so innovation, diversity and social impact literally go together, not just in their own silos. And so when we talk about like the innovation, individuals, entities or organizations, even government entities will say, oh, we want to innovate this program, this policy or this our engagement. And one of the things we talk about is what 
diverse thought are you bringing to the table to help you with innovation? Innovation is an intersection of multiple disciplines and multiple perspectives. And so we know we have a different perspective, but one of the things we help our our partners or the individuals that we work with understand is that you have access to the same diversity. Do you understand it? Do you embrace it? Do you celebrate it? Do you encourage it? Do you include it? So not only can we help them with a particular, um, you know, particular project, but what it, when we talk about sustainability, it's you have this this in. Internally, how do you now uh, get the most out of it? So your assistant or your analyst or coordinator or director, do they have the influence or the table or the space to share their thoughts? Because what we shared with you and made uh, you know a, a good contract on, there's people within your agency that could have said the same thing, but they weren't given access to the table, nor were they felt celebrated uh, when talking about uh, something that they would help their company or their ecosystem evolve. And so so when we talk about that, and then the same thing with impact, and obviously now in social impact, uh, environmental impact is just here. It's not a fad. It's not a just a saying anymore. It is a, has to be a fabric. And so one of the things we talk about is you know what is your social, what is your impact, and and not just um, looking at you know what's nostalgia, what you want to do. It's you have an impact now. You're paying individuals from a certain demographic. How do you celebrate and highlight that? Um, and then how do you then look at some of the, the some of your the deficiencies? But it's not always hey I'm going to eradicate poverty and. By 20, 2050, that's not the that that's not always the impact we're talking about. We're saying, hey, you have daily impact right now. And also in your impact, you could be causing daily harm if you don't know it. Just because you intend to do well, how do you understand your impact, both positively and negatively? And we talk about how do you use data for that? Um, so what is it that you currently pay? You know, and I'll give an example. What are you currently paying, you know, all levels of, of individuals within your company? Are they living wages, right? So if you go and advocate for, you know, uh, wealth generation or uh, wealth equity and, 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 but then you're paying individuals below minimum wage where they now qualify for public assistance. Now we have to look and say, what is your impact? You can have these lofty goals of, oh, I want to eradicate, um, you know, poverty or homelessness. And then I want to, um, you know, have zero emissions. I love those initiatives. Don't take away from that. But then you, but then half or third of your workforce is on public assistance and they're fully employed. So you can have a different level of impact uh, and not just shoot for this 2050 eradication of something, but you can have an impact today. And so those are the things that we talk about and we work on. But like I said, so our projects are unique. They go from organizations to, you know, national organizations to some of the top uh, companies in, in this country, but they're always looking at how do we have an impact? And once again, it's bringing in this diversity and, and innovation. And then two, for us, diversity, um, you know, is not just, you know, who do you hire, your hiring practices. We let, you know, we do touch on some of that, but we let some uh, other talented and individuals uh, work in that space. Uh, but we do support those things. But once again, our sure. diversity is how does that impact and how do we bring diverse thoughts to diverse yeah, perspectives? So you have this, you, you have this tr- like you said, this trinity, this trio of kind of three-legged stool of your philosophy. And then yes, you sir. bring that in, you bring that in, and then that's like we wash through whatever the client organizations are working on or struggled with. Like we're washing their challenges and opportunities through this lens of this tri-folded table, uh, and and out comes this more balanced business or organization or community, et cetera. Exactly. And, 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 and I'll just, and I'll just end with it's, it's not transactional, right? And that's one of the things that we want to, we, we, we love to, you know, we make sure we pick in our clients and these are not transactional. I just don't want to have this innovative thought or 
celebrates uh, diversity because of the moment that I'm in or, or have social impact so I can uh, you know, retain a couple of Gen Z staff and or, um, you know, uh, get highlighted, you know, and, and get a couple of clients on a commercial. It is how do you now ingrain this in the fabric? And that's another space where we help is how do we make this a part of your habit, your culture, your experience and not just yeah. transactional? We're not here for transactions that once again, we have, there's other consultants that will gladly take your money for that. We want to make sure you think this is about, uh, you know, habitual change and, and uh, adoption. And um, like I said, an experience that you want not only your customers to go through, but your um, but your um, uh, your coworkers as well. Right. OK, so so you, you couple we're going to dive a couple shorter questions here, but kind of playing off this jummy group. So you referenced right in the intro of it. Uh, that it's part of an ecosystem of companies or projects that you work on. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, if yeah. there are, are there literally, are there, are there other consultancies? Are there other programs that you're a part of? And yeah. how do, how do, why do you call it like your own? It sounds like you've created your own little portfolio. Yeah. So, so we, when, uh, as I mentioned it, you know, at the beginning talking about, you know, like you said, how do we, you know, impact changes and on an individual level, company level, or, you know, what level do we, um, do we operate on when, you know, as we're engaged in, uh, you know, the job group, we also saw some things, um, that we felt that we can, uh, fill the gap in through different entities. And so, uh, so for instance, let's just talk about business development and engagement of minority uh, entrepreneurs and business owners. And so we've had clients that wanted to engage. They wanted to um, be, they wanted minority or diverse business owners and entrepreneurs to be a part of their supply chain. How do I connect to black and brown entrepreneurs? And so as we're doing that, one of the things that we noticed was that some of the requirements of these companies that wanted to engage this population, um, like when we looked at some of the minority business owners, either they didn't have the right um, access to capital so that they can buy inventory and or whatever it is that they needed to do to be a part of this supply chain supply and this chain vendor. for this particular company, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when we looked at it, we said, okay, there are individuals who can be one of your suppliers or vendors, but there are impediments that, that once again, are just there structurally and or just their access to certain things. And so um, when, in doing that, one of the things we created, um, uh, so a group of us is called the I2J group, which is a like a private equity firm um, that we're looking at. How do you, um, you know, build communities? But we did it through buying companies and growing jobs. Um, and okay. so um, another thing, and, and I'll get on silo tangents when we talked about and, and entrepreneurship has been a, a a sexy topic over the last several years. And then um, then the hyper focus on how do we get more black and brown entrepreneurs, um, you know, into this space. And so that's been a big push. And a number of our clients want to want to have influence in that space from policy to programs to initiatives all throughout the country. And so we're advising them on this work. And, and one of the things we continue to notice was that we're always looking at um, entrepreneurs of color in a space and and really giving them a, a small sliver of what this entire pie of business ownership looks like. And, and, and a lot of it was always starting. You know, we're giving money for startups. Here's an accelerator mm-hmm. program. Here's right. another incubator program, which is not a bad thing. I love it. We need it. Keep just those piece, going. Keep those going. Piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Just be, and but and it's just the, uh, uh, one of the um, one of the uh, another piece of business ownership is acquisition. Um, and so we we you hear about it from Google acquiring something or these large companies acquiring, you know, other companies for hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. And you never really see yourself in that space because that's a billion dollar transaction. Right. Sure. There's a merger that happens that it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So you don't ever see yourself in the space. But as we're engaging 
individuals who we're trying to include into this entire space of economic development and business development, uh, one of the things we miss is uh, acquisitions. And, and so right now, the um, business owners, the, the vast majority of business owners are baby boomers. They are retiring. These companies are in a number of industries, but um, in, in several of the industries, their children are not in those same industries uh, for whatever reasons that, you know, the parents were able to support their student, you know, their young uh, scholars to be doctors or lawyers or sure, school right, principals. Yeah, They're different. Right, the parents. The parents' generation, the, bo- the boomers and the Gen Xers, older Gen mm-hmm. Xers above me, might, like you said, maybe they weren't, maybe they didn't go to college or maybe they went to college, but then they got into work or maybe they became entrepreneurial. And, and now their kids are the beneficiaries of that, right? So they're, yes. they've, they've, they're, now, they're now more white collar, more professionalized, et cetera. So there isn't that next generation always to take over the business for you. Exactly. Exactly. And so when we, when we saw this, um, there was opportunities to say we can get really talented entrepreneurs in the game, not by starting from scratch, trying to compete, not only raise the capital to compete in a sophisticated market or an industry, um, but they can acquire a company that would already have um, you know assets and or, you know from employees to other resources. And then to some instant credibility to be a part of this um you know, uh, uh, entrepreneur or this industry and this this entrepreneur or business owner ecosystem. And so when we saw that, we were, you know, we said, how do we now start talking about it? And we we were softly talking to some friends and say, hey, why don't you buy a business? And even our very talented friends, uh, pe- people of color would look at us and say, what? Mm-hmm. No, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to start this. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, oh, how long have you been trying to start this? Oh, yeah, it's been mm-hmm. my idea for the last seven years. <laughs> and, right, and, right. and it's not an innovation that no one has. It's not IP in that space. It's space things that exist. And we're right. like, hey, buy, buy these companies. And so anyway... And, and certain people in certain times, like you have to show them, not just talk about it. And there's sure. books. Uh, there's a book called Buy Them Build. That's a really good book, easy read. And I, I share that with a number of individuals to, to really just wet their palate. But at the end of the day, we started I2J Group, uh, which okay. is looking at you know buying companies, growing jobs, but we're building communities at the same time. So it goes back to that economic development and, and with people of color in mind. Um, and how to connect them to this uh, entrepreneurial industry and or this business awesome. owner ownership through a different means. And so you can so leverage. You come in, so you come in, you're, so I, I2J, IJ2. Mm-hmm. I2J, yep, I2J. I2J, right, comes in and, and partners with the existing owners. Are you buying these companies outright and taking them over? Are you buying them and the, the original them. founders are still involved or... It, at different different levels, but but at the end of the day, it's acquisition. Um, and so, okay, once so, again, so, so most of the original founders are selling out. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. And yeah. then you're coming into a community and say, like, hey, we're high. We're the new owners of that hardware store or whatever yes. it is, manufacturing company or whatever. Yes. And then two, and, and then one of the things about communities is that some, uh, these companies mean something to the community. They have been sure. Star Wars for decades. They've not only a tax body, but they also are a vendor. Uh, they pay, um, they, you know, uh, they have employees that have worked with them for a number of years. And, and obviously, if they don't uh, find a suitable uh, uh, buyer, then they yeah, either close their doors. Right. Yeah. 
And so, and so this is these, and and once again, this is just a stat that it's going to continue to impact our community. And or you have foreign investments that come over and buy, um, you know, several of these, and then they, you know, they change the structure and it and it, it changes the impact of the community. Mm-hmm. Then we said we have viable business owners and, and entrepreneurs that can stand in the gap and buy these companies. And so it's not just foreign investments that are buying the manufacturing and some of these other industries that we're in from healthcare and, and whatnot. We have individuals that we feel um, that could step in the space, and so. We and, and I2J okay. is like a private equity uh, uh, yeah. group, but once again, but we don't usually use that term because we want individuals to understand you can build communities through intentional investment. So um, you and, just you just segued us to my next question because okay. you've now because <laughs> because you've now said it twice. So right, so I know I've known since you first introduced yourself to me. You you literally introduce yourself and present yourself online as an industrialist. Yeah. Right. And so you don't, you don't present yourself as a venture investor. You don't present yourself as a private equity guy. You don't present yourself as an operating executive per se. So, so two things, like explain this, your own version or vision of this word industrialist and why you use it that way. And then, and then let's maybe, maybe if you can, and I'm not asking you to share like private information, but if you've got like one or two examples or stories of literal companies that you guys have have purchased and are building um, that I think that would be awesome. So first let's talk about why are you an industrialist? Cause when I hear that word, I think like fat white guys from the 1800s <laughs> wearing, wearing like tuxedos and with monocle spectacles and like a big cigar. And, but you are clearly not that guy. For, by the way, for our audience, he's not that guy. That I just <laughs> Uh, well, well, you know, um, and one of the other uh, characteristics of that, that the person that you just mentioned is wealthy. So I will be that. I'll take on go. that one. The, the other uh, the other characteristics I am not. But uh, so yeah. so in that. So in industrials, one of the things that uh, that I love uh, well about the word is that, you know, industrials, you know, that, that's about ownership of it uh, and their management of an industry. Right. And so when I talked about different levels. Right. So when as an entrepreneur, once again, as in, even in my 20s and, and owning companies and trying to do this entrepreneurial thing in my 20s, once again, it was about a company. Um, but then as I continue to get exposed to individuals, once again, from different uh, parts of our country, great country, and then even globally, um, these individuals were leaders of industries. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm trying to run a company. And these dudes are running energy industries, right? Like transportation industries. I said, I'm still thinking small. I'm still thinking income rich, even though I use the words wealth. I said, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the the demographic or the character that you mentioned uh, when describing what you felt uh, around industrialists. These are individuals who are some of the wealthiest families that trickle down there, you know, from colleges uh, that are named after them to cities and, and what libraries. <laughs> exactly. And so how many of us are talking or teaching or training individuals to be industrialists, right? right. And, and we're, not, and that's we're just, not, by the way. How many, yeah. I'll answer that question. Zero <laughs> of us are teaching or training people to do that. Right. Because so, we've shifted. I so okay. So now I know you use the word because it's it's literally it's a constant reminder for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, all right. So do you have an example or two of, of companies that you guys have acquired and are building? Yes. And so, so one is a home improvement um, company in Texas. And, and so, uh, so in that was the same thing, you know, looking at an individual who was looking to, um, you know, it was like, Hey, I'm going to either, you know, sell to one of these, you know, big uh, conglomerate organizations, uh, but that's not what they wanted because it, it would lose the identity that, you know, the staff that had been with them for some time. Um, and just the, what they built over 20 years, uh, they're like, that's not why they built it is to sell it. 
to, um, you know, to a large uh, box store. But they said, hey, obviously I need to get out. My family needs to, to move on. And so I'll, I'll do it if I have to. But and so uh, and a couple of things that we really liked is that, you know, when we when we jumped into the space, um, one, when we just talk about community, we, we talked about like this balance of mental health, family and just understanding people. The industry is kind of known for working six days a week. And so we came yeah. in and, and changed that and said, nope, we, if we need to make an investment in additional staff, which we did, to make sure that you're working five days a week, you know, and then and then too, even in those even those five days, that is flexible. So if we need to move things around, if you need to do things with family, or if you need to just take time off for mental health, we have enough a human capital or capacity to make that happen. So it's not stressful on you to take on um management of an entity um, with your personal, um, you know, with your your personal needs or social needs and so or or mental health needs. And so when someone raised their hand and say, I need to do something for my family, I always told them we take care of the rest. All you need to do is tell me what you need and you don't have to figure it out. Oh, I figured out. I think I could take off Tuesday. My my, my daughter's sick, but I'll work off Wednesday. Like we have to do this. And I had to do this in, in, in my professional life is now make sure that my requests were OK to management. Like, would they OK this? Right. And so it's like, take the stress off of you. Right. So we make these investments and say, if we care about you, we need to create an environment that is actually for you. Um, and. And so, so anyway, so so we do this. So like I said, so this is not just by talking; it's by making structural investments. And so now, individuals and just and and it's really really cool because when you hear them talk about their experience, like they talk about the traumatization of different management um, that they've had at different jobs that they've had at over time or what they felt. And when they talk, either on the phone or people come in, they talk about a different structure that not only that they not only just see themselves in, but they were like, I don't see myself outside of this. And it's really, really cool. And they're bringing family members to come work or they're saying, hey, you need to hire a cousin or a friend. And I love that because now it's creating something different. And it's not that we're losing money. So when we talk about doing things that are for community, a lot of times people think, oh, well, that's charity. That means you're giving away money. No, this is an intentional design to make an investment in something that we know is going to make a great return. And so it's how do you now model that, right? So it's not charity that we're doing. This is an intentional investment in people. Um, and so, so anyway, that's awesome. so that's... So, that's, so a, home, a home improvement company in Texas, uh, mm-hmm, what, what's, mm-hmm. another, what's another example? Uh, and then uh, healthcare, um, and so uh, you know, same thing. And so once again, it's just, it, it's looking at the things. And like I said, these are great uh, great opportunities on paper. They're doing great before. So I'm not knocking anybody who've owned them before. They were doing an amazing job. Otherwise, they wouldn't be around for decades. But it's just now looking at it from with our perspective of saying and, and then community engagement. And then too, um, you know, some of the resources that we have in, in, in these companies, we now are saying, how do we now make investments in uh, you know, in the community, in the social fabric, in the religious fabric, in the education fabric. Like, how do you weave that into the experience of not only our customers, but my colleagues and then to the business? And that's and those are just intentional ways to do it. Like I said, it's not just a charity. What do we do with our profits? Don't get me wrong. Keep doing that. That's great. But how do you weave the experience of, you know, education policy or economic policy or entrepreneurial um you know, uh, fervor into it. And I'll just give a quick example. One in the home improvement, we have, I have two colleagues that are, that are in the home improvement space that are entrepreneurs and, and their businesses were not directly exactly, um, 
what what we purchase, but it has like they they could be I guess you can say almost add-ons or add some value. And it's how do we help you continue to be the best entrepreneur you can be and continue to grow your company while you work here? And so some people say, oh well, you're you know you're you're helping them start a company. One, you know, I always love your a full-time job could be your first investor in your company. Uh, and so 100%. tell them, you know, I, I say that all the time. I love it. See, that's, that's why you're a good, that's, that's why we're good I, friends. <laughs> I tell, yeah, no, I mean, I tell young entrepreneurs in Latin America where obviously it's the, the economics of life are very different than they are in the U S and I say all the time, I say, don't be ashamed to, to think about your day job as your angel investor. Exactly. Right? I mean, like that's, that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's, there's no shame in like, well, I can't, you know, because there's this perceived, you know, culture nowadays of startups and founders and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, you know, the younger ones, especially the first time ones get caught up in that belief that they have to be that and they have to, you know, grind and all that. It's like, hey, you can have a day job and build this on the side until such time that you can smartly transition over because of the opportunity and the revenue or the income or whatever. Right? That, that's the way we used to build businesses. We just gotten a, a segment of startup life has gotten away from that in the last 40 years. Uh, but that's not, it's not all of it. You're right. And I, and I think too, and, I, and to your point, and then, you know, and, and you didn't mention my work at, uh, on uh, the higher level. And one of the things I always like to not just dispel, but until making sure individuals have the full picture is that when you read in the fast company or inks or what, you know, wherever blogs or whatever you're reading about this entrepreneur that talked about their struggle or, or whatnot. Uh, a number of times I tell them, I was like, if you actually look, some of those individuals were not, they may not have been W2 employees, but they had con- contracts with other individuals. Mm-hmm. They were coding, they were building, mm-hmm. they were designing, and they didn't tell yeah. you that. They didn't tell yeah. you, oh, I was getting you know my bills paid by doing a couple of projects on the side while I was doing yeah. this. They don't tell you that. They just say, hey, it was a struggle. It was a hustle. And so right. now you're thinking, I have to now leave everything that I'm yeah. doing because that person you know, created this narrative that I was just, you know, only focus on my company. And it's like, no, yeah. no, they no, weren't. No, I know no, there's a great, there's a, there's a great modern day example of this. Uh, and who knows, she may even be here when you're here, you guys might get a chance to meet a young African-American uh, entrepreneur, first time entrepreneur uh, that I met on Twitter uh, and we've become friends and uh, she's building in the beauty space and uh, has built it on the backs of her full-time day job as a project manager for Microsoft. <laughs> right. I mean, so she's and and literally this month, like the end of March, she has finally decided after years of doing both in parallel that now is the time to cut over and and bet fully on herself and and take that additional risk um, and really go all in on her business because her business has got to the point where it clearly could use the extra attention that she has sacrificed, you know, with so many hours per week to the full time job at Microsoft. So it's it's happening all 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 day every day all around us. And I love that you're encouraging that. So, okay. So, hey, uh, in your bio, when we introduced you, we also referred to you as an educator. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so I want to I want to talk a little bit about kind of I'm going to call it like the education uh, portion of the show here uh, before we before we kind of start to wrap up here. Um, so, you there's a couple of threads that that have taken you through this journey. So, as you have said a few different times, right? You had the the opportunity, the good fortune, however you want to describe it, to have to go and work and build your early career inside of the Obama administration. And, and then coming out of that, you are now, as we referred to you in your introduction, uh, you are the dean of the business college at Stillman College. Uh, so what, talk to us about maybe those two anchors in your journey 
maybe kind of short, you know, story about how you got invited into work in the Obama administration, uh, you know, what that was like, what your, you know, what the couple of takeaways were. You've already talked about how you built so many great relationships with so many smart people that is converted into your private sector life. But, but maybe talk a little bit about that and then talk about how maybe that some of those relationships led to your role as the dean of a business college at a small school in Alabama. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I'll make sure I, I make this quick because I can get on the soapbox quickly. But uh, so, so, um, so with the administration, I one, you know, being from Illinois and working in Chicago, we had a you know number of individuals who worked on the campaign, and, um, you know, Obama's first run, and and a number of them, you know, went out to work. And at the time, I was an entrepreneur, and then you know there was opportunities to to explore it then. And at the time, I just I didn't see the value um, of it at the time. So hence of a. a Several years later, um, during the second term, I had uh, you know a college friend, Demetria Gallagher, who is also co-founder of uh, and co-owner of uh, the Jami Group. Um, she she was like, okay, Isaac, all right, we're at different levels now in our our careers, and she goes, you need to take a look at this again. I'm like, eh, ah, was just kind of indifferent. And, and anyway, I, I remember uh, she is a, a, a amazing woman and great at a lot a lot of things, and one is sales pitch. And so she said, Isaac. Uh, look at the resumes of people who I'm, I'm gonna, you know, take. Go look at their LinkedIn, see what they were doing before the administration, and then see what they're doing after. And these are individuals who had had already left uh, the administration. So, I, so she sent me some names. I looked at it. I promise you, I looked. I laughed and said, "What? What were they doing before?" And then this catapulting in their career. Right. And so she pitched, she, I, she pitched you on the network effect. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing that, I, you know, and I was I had already loved network, strong networker, but it was just that exponential growth. And I just didn't understand it because, like I said, I had not known anyone that, you know, besides young people or, you know, people my age that worked in one. So so anyway, so I did that and I literally was like, OK, OK, got my attention. And so had the opportunity to, to, to come in and, and work, um, you know, in the Department of Commerce, uh, in particular, the agency was a minority business development agency um, with uh, a focus on uh, businesses that were at a million dollars revenue and above um, and helping them in the spaces of like access to contracts, capital and markets. And and then I had the uh, a, a unique opportunity to kind of pick a niche within that. And so so I started leaning towards markets. And at first it was finance, uh, but then you really get to see, and, and I love the, you know, not just the the administration, that there was some attention put on it, or at least from a verbal perspective, saying we need, you know, to get more um, capital in diverse uh, business owners' hands. But when you actually see it, it's a lot harder. So you would think that a president of the United States with, you know, these very talented uh, secretaries of different divisions that, oh, you'd be like, oh, they could just pass it in, right? Legislation. Right. No. And no, 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 no. And so, um, and so, and, and this is not a liberal thing, a conservative thing. No, this is it's the a gov- money. Gov- yeah. it's, it's a governance. It's a governance thing. Governance yeah. is hard. It, it is. It is. And so when, when seeing that, I said, oh, God, deploying capital is going to be a lot harder than I think. Uh, then I thought, and I was like, so let me look at this access to to, to mar- the, this, the access to diverse markets. And so um, one of the things that I got excited about there was that there were really talented um, minority business owners. And I'm talking individuals that are in hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of revenue a year. So these were not small businesses by any no, means. Leaders, these are like, yeah. like in 
industrialists, like leaders. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that I noticed that got that um, that once again connect to education and even some of the work in the Jami Group and I2J and, and some of those things where um, even these individuals who I would look at and say they're leaders in spaces of energy, transportation, construction, all this stuff, right? And you would say, oh my God, that's a successful black business. When you compare them to their counterparts, a majority white business in that same space, they were not growing at the same space because they didn't have the same access. And this is something that I got to witness from firsthand perspective in the administration. And so when we had these summits or when we bring business leaders to the table, the, these minority, powerful minority business owners would always be ancillary. They would be like the little meeting on the Tuesday. But the big meeting of the billionaires, that was a different conversation. That was a different meeting. Right. And they didn't have access to that. And I said, these individuals should be billionaires by now. Easy. Because they're brilliant, rent businesses brilliantly, but they grow just marginally. Where individuals went from three hundred thousand to one point two billion to three billion, and they were just yeah. at three hundred million, four hundred, right. four fifty, right. and it's like a steady growth, great growth. Like you're fine, yeah. right? Yeah, but exactly. anyway, so, so you saw you saw it in context, and that's it, and that that it does matter. It, it, and, and so and so that was like I said, so it was a great opportunity to engage and, and help, um, you know, these businesses be in the rooms where they can now exponentially grow yeah. their business and, and, um, and then show and connect to other business owners. And so that was also something that, um, you know, then we started connecting to, you know, the next generation of, you know, global influencers. And and so we did a lot of work with HBCUs around innovation, okay. uh, around entrepreneurship. Let's, let's, let's interrupt for a second, just so we can clarify, because this is a great teaching moment. HBCUs, you and I know what those are. Historically Black colleges and universities. Explain yes, what that, explain what that is to the rest of the world who's listening. Yes. Yes. So, um, so there are, um, so HBCUs, as you mentioned, are historically black college and universities. They're also, so your institutions kind of like, like John Hopkins, University of Illinois, Pittsburgh, uh, University of Pittsburgh, those are considered PWIs, which are predominantly white institutions. Um, yeah. And then you'll have, you know, LSIs, which are Latin serving institutions. Um, and you have MSIs, which are minority serving institutions. And so this just okay. helps you know, understand who, um, you know who attends these institutions uh, around. So, uh, so that, around that's how they're that's how they're defined. So now mm -hmm. we've got the definition part. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the history. So historically, black colleges and universities, HBCUs in particular, mm -hmm. have played a special role and an important role and a very prominent place in American secondary education for a long time. Yes, so, 150 years. Like, yeah, I know. 150 years. Okay, so 150 years. He's a, yeah. And how many are how many are there? Uh, I think right now, I think there's 107, if I'm not mistaken. 107 different mm -hmm. schools, and mm -hmm. they're in a number of different states and different portions of the country, but predominantly like the East Coast and South. And predominantly, yes, yes. Predominantly the, the Southern states. And yeah, there's a couple of Pennsylvania, Ohio, but yeah, predominantly the South. All right, so hey. Let's, let's finish this out. You now get to be the mentor for the day for our audience. And in closing, that gives you the chance to share three specific pieces of advice under the umbrella of all the things we've talked about or life lessons or things you always tell people, whatever it is you'd like to do, just three specific pieces of advice that we can leave our audience with that they can stop listening to this when they listen to it in the future and go away and think like, wow, I'm, I'm going to try and apply that. Wait, three. Okay. Okay. Um, 
So I'll start with one, maybe with an entrepreneurial, just anybody who's interested in being maybe just in the entrepreneurial innovation space. I would say uh, Nelson Mandela has a great quote that I love. It's either uh, he goes, I never lose. I either I win or I learn. Uh, and I just want to couch this and say, um, you know, so so his quote, once again, was, uh, I never lose, I either win or I learn. And for entrepreneurs of color, this means something. Um, because in in our uh, in our upbringings, one, we are usually discouraged into entrepreneurship. Uh, one, because it's go get this good job. Um, the the path to wealth is getting this really good job. And and that's really, you know, this 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 kind of like the this family or community pride is, oh, my baby's a doctor or a lawyer or an executive at this company. And so um so so one, when individuals say I want to start a company, um, they are usually discouraged in it. And one of the things that happens is when and we know as an entrepreneur, you will fail. You will you will have some failures and some and some lows. But and when you go back to your community and especially people of color say, I told you so, you shouldn't have left that job. You should stay with that job. And so so you're not losing when you're learning as an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur, uh, most of the things that you even if you pay attention to some of the interventions or successes of entrepreneurs, they've learned the most in their failure, in that valley, in that part where they didn't succeed. And so I just want to tell that to 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 our entrepreneurs of any age. I never lose. I either I win or I learn. And so understand that things that don't go your way. Figure out um, what are you learning, and then how do you implement that and undergird that, and and uh, so that you can get back on the saddle. Because entrepreneurship isn't a trying and failing thing; it is a continuous learning experience. And so, if you're going to go in it, be in it for the long haul, not for a transaction. Because the first company may not work out well, the second company may not even work out well. You're in this for the long haul. It's it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, another, I would say, maybe to more of our advocates, especially of, you know, if it be economic development, any advocacy for anything. One of the things I learned, and like I said, it's more from a spiritual standpoint, is how do you how do you become and, and stay in the space of an agitator, not an aggravator? Um, and I think this okay. is um, it really important in our just having discourse of any kind. Um, when you agitate someone, you percolate their, their, their senses. Um, you percolate their curiosity. So that they're saying, okay, I need to hear more. I need to learn more. I want to learn more. Even though it may be a difficult conversation, I want to learn more. I want to continue to engage. When you aggravate, you now make people defensive. You shut people off from learning and listening. And that's what you do not want. Um, and, and so this is something for anybody on any side of any conversation. You don't want to aggravate because you've now created more ignorance or you're a part of fundamentally ignorance because someone shut off listening to your brilliance or to something. And so, so, so don't be an aggravator, be an agitator. So you want them to get up, but you don't want them to leave the room. You want them to get up, to find information, to move a seat, but not to leave the room or, nor to be defensive. Um, and, and, and also it, it kind of just connects to, um, and how you do that, you go into conversations, you try to get it right. You don't try to be right. When you try to be right, you're already aggravating somebody because you're going in there trying to make them listen to you. And we are all human beings uniquely designed to listen and to speak. So you do not have to try to be right. Just try to get it right. And if you do that, you you usually end on uh, the, the side of an agi uh, uh, agitator when you're just trying to get it right. And, and then, too, for my for my policy level uh, individuals, my system thinkers, uh, those that are trying to create an environment that is very inclusive, diverse, equitable and just. Um, 
when we talk about economic development, just make sure that uh, policies, programs, initiatives are not based just in social service. And I, and and one of the things I always say is um, don't look, don't do economic through social service lenses. And what do I mean by that? Um, a lot of things, especially in the black and brown community or disadvantaged or disenfranchised communities, when we talk about economic economic development, it lends to the the areas of is, is always training technical assistance, education, and mentors. Economic development is about assets and the use and ownership of assets. If your policy program or initiative does not put assets in that person's hands or that community's hands, reevaluate what you're doing. Doesn't mean that technical assistance, training and mentorship is not good. I need it. We love it. I I want it to be a part of the pie. Do not think that simply because you give a person of color a mentor, because you take them through an entrepreneurial class or some summit, that they are now equipped to now compete in a, in, in a capitalistic market. They need assets. So right. your policy. Because they're not. Yes. Yeah. Policy, and, and these are things. And once again, there's books you can talk about from and uh, from uh, you know our historical, uh, from a historical context, when government and or our economy wanted people to be included in the in our economy. They gave them houses. They made investments in education. They gave them assets. They did not just give them training. They gave them assets to go with the training. Dude, uh, it was such a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's fun to talk to you in this context, which is a little different in me being interviewer, you playing interviewee. Um, but there's so much good conversation here. I can't wait to see you in person and continue this and go more specific. When we're when we're in person here in LA in a couple of weeks, so that's awesome. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm proud of you. It's it's awesome to hear you tell the stories of how you got there. I think there's some inspiration in this for people um, to hear what's possible. Uh, representation matters, so it's uh, it's awesome to see you shine like this and shine the light for everybody else. So thank you. No, I appreciate appreciate the opportunity to join you. Um, and I know that you're an inspiration to everyone that listens to you and that you engage across this, uh, across the globe. And, and I would uh, speak on behalf of the other individuals you've interviewed over the time and those that you're interviewing, the, the future that you are an inspiration to us as well. And so I know um, that the work that we do, uh, you know, it's that iron sharpens iron. So it's always good to com- commune and to connect with uh, talented individuals who care. And so, so like I said, you are an inspiration to me and thank you for the let me join you today. Love it. Get on my uh, a so, so uh, thank you. That was very kind of you. So normally I would tell people that they could go follow you on Twitter or Instagram, but they can't follow you on Twitter <laughs> or Instagram. So let's just tell people if they wanted to get a hold of you, if there were investors that want to partner with you on what you're doing, if there are entrepreneurs who want to be inspired by you or follow you, where where can they find you on social media and or website or how can they get in touch with you and email? Yes, sir. Uh, so one way is LinkedIn. So that is the only, uh, I guess you can say, virtual social connection social. platform. Yeah, <laughs> platform that I'm on. So Isaac McCoy is I-S-A-A-C McCoy. Um, so please reach out to me there. Um, also, um, you know, I have uh, anything with uh, education or connection or engagement or experience uh, for talented scholars. Uh, you can reach me via email um, at uh, I McCoy is M C C O Y at Stillman dot edu and that's S T I L L M A N dot edu. Um, you can visit our websites for the Jami Group and that is is the Jami Group dot com and uh, it is T H E J A M I I Group 
www.privateequitygroup.com. And then if you want to check out some of the work with our private equity group and our our community building, uh, community uh, building group, it is I2J and so the number two. So it's I2JGroup.com. So come visit us. And I'm excited. I can, I know I'm good at my job that I just got you to talk more about social media than I've heard you talk about social media in (laughs) four years. That's awesome. That's great. I'm a good interviewer. I just got you to list like five different websites I've never heard you refer to before. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Today's show was recorded in Los Angeles and Guadalajara, produced by Deanna Bernal in Mexico City, and promoted by the content team at Growth Hacks in Tijuana, Mexico. You can always find and share our show via any popular podcasting platform, as well as find us on social media at Mentors Today on Instagram. If you'd like to connect with our hosts, you can find them on Twitter or Instagram at I am Rob Ryan or at Ileana J-A-F. Gracias, thank you, and we'll see you next time.